today on Cornerstone Connection with Pastor Gary Hamrick. Here he pulls up to the church in this pimped up ride with the purple interior. I just want a picture of velour or velvet on the inside of this thing. And he's got these souped up Hot Wheels that he pulls up to the church ready to pick up his bride. Now, what I find fascinating is here, this story is about a thousand years before Christ. Here we are 3,000 years later. Things haven't changed, friends. What is something that a guy loves to do to impress a woman? Drive up in a nice car. That's exactly what he's doing here. He's just like, try to impress her with a nice card. This is Cornerstone Connection, the radio ministry of Pastor Gary Hamrick of Cornerstone Chapel in Leesburg, Virginia. Pastor Gary is teaching through Song of Solomon. The Song of Solomon is a wonderful story of a man and woman in the process of becoming husband and wife. The love that is spoken of by both people is captivating and challenges us to consider our own feelings toward our lover. Pastor Gary will teach on the timelessness of romance and the need for that aspect to remain in our own relationships. He'll also touch on the veiled meanings of this book, which are both the relationship between God and His people, Israel, and between the Messiah, Jesus, and His bride, the church. At the close of Pastor Gary's message today, I'll be sharing with you how you can get a copy of today's broadcast of Cornerstone Connection. Subscribe to the podcast or get in touch with us. But for now, please turn to the book of Solomon, chapters 3 through 5. And let's join Pastor Gary for part one of today's message, Marital Love. For today, we're here in the Song of Solomon, or again, also called the Song of Songs. It's a love story between King Solomon, the third king of Israel, and some unnamed Shulamite woman who is obviously his, either his first love or his one true love. Because Solomon had many loves, but this appears to be his one true love or his first love. And this book was written, no doubt, early in his reign as king before he stumbles into polygamy and having concubines in addition to multiple marriages. So this is really an expression of the one true love of his life. And this book here takes us in progression from courtship to marriage to sex in that order. And so what we read here is sometimes sexually explicit, though it's veiled in poetic language. Uh, And this book was originally written as a song. That's the name of the book, Song of Solomon or Song of Songs that Solomon wrote. Now, it is included in the Bible for two reasons. Why is this book, even with its veiled poetic but sexually explicit language, included in the Bible? Two reasons. Number one, to celebrate romance and the gift of sex that God has given for enjoyment between a husband and a wife in a monogamous heterosexual relationship. That's one reason why it's included, to let us know to celebrate that. And number two, to illustrate the higher spiritual love between God and his people. We're going to take kind of a 30,000 foot view of the Song of Solomon in regards to how it reflects a greater spiritual love of God for us. 
When we're first introduced to this couple here in the first couple of chapters, they are courting. Now, that's kind of a stronger word than just dating. In ancient Jewish society, dating was foreign to them. That is kind of a Western, made-up, more modern way that we get to know one another in preparation for marriage. But courtship is at kind of a higher level where you are actually in preparation for marriage. In an ancient Jewish home, of course, and even still today in some parts of the Middle East, marriages were in large part arranged by the parents. It's a little different here with King Solomon because he's king now. And he became king somewhere between the ages of 15 and 17 when his father David had died. He becomes king. His mother Bathsheba is still living, but this is not an arranged marriage because when you're king of the most powerful nation on the planet, you kind of get to choose whoever you want to marry. And so no doubt he's got the choice of any woman, but he's madly in love with one in particular, and she's the subject of this story. And so this is not an arranged marriage. This is a marriage that has been cultivated because of a deep sense of love that they have for each other, but it's going to lead here to marriage. We'll see in chapter 3, and then it's going to lead to the sexual consummation of their marriage in chapter 4. Before we jump into chapter 3 and 4, just another reminder, the topic was courtship love. We looked at how they were preparing for marriage. They expressed their love for one another on three levels, physical beauty, spiritual integrity, and moral purity. That is to say that they were physically attracted to each other as any two people should be if they're planning to get married. That isn't a commentary on some people are good looking and some people aren't. It just simply is a statement that each person should be physically attracted to each other if you're going to marry one another. And then also not just the outward attraction, but the inward attraction. That's the spiritual integrity. We hear about how she is enamored with and captivated by his character. And that is also true of him for her. We see that illustrated more clearly in the book of Ruth. But they are both attracted to each other for the inward beauty as well. People of character, virtue, of principle. And then finally, we see their moral purity here. He's going to say about her in chapter 4, verse 12, that she is a garden that is locked up. That is a reference to her being a virgin. Three times in this book, she is going to warn her girlfriends not to arouse or to awaken love before its time. And that time, in inference, is marriage. So we see that they've kept themselves physically, sexually pure for their wedding, and these three things characterize their courtship. But now things are about to change. As we look into chapter 3, we're going to see them get married. And in chapter 4, she, in using the poetic language of the chapter, she's going to invite him into her garden. So they're going to consummate the marriage in chapter 4. And thus, today's teaching is, on marital love. We're going from courtship love now to marital love. So I'm going to read from chapter 3, verse 6, down through the end of the chapter, and then we'll also cover chapter 4 and a little bit of chapter 5 today if we have enough time. So here we go, chapter 3, starting at verse 6. It says, Who is this coming up from the desert like a column of smoke, perfumed with myrrh and incense, made from all the spices of the merchant? Look, It is Solomon's carriage, escorted by 60 warriors, the noblest of Israel, all of them wearing the sword, all experienced in battle, each with his sword at his side, prepared for the terrors of the night. King Solomon made for himself the carriage. 
He made it of wood from Lebanon, its posts he made of silver, its base of gold, its seat was upholstered with purple, its interior lovingly inlaid by the daughters of Jerusalem. Come out, you daughters of Zion, and look at King Solomon wearing the crown, the crown with which his mother crowned him on the day of his wedding, the day his heart rejoiced. So as we move here into chapter 3, what we're going to notice in chapter 3 and moving into chapter 4, the first thing of three points today, celebration and consummation. We're going to come to the celebration of the ceremony, that's chapter 3, and then we're going to go into chapter 4, which speaks about how they consummate their marriage physically, sexually. But this section that I just read here from chapter 3 describes the processional of Solomon coming for his bride, and he is decked out, and he's riding in this chariot or this carriage that is made just for this occasion. He's got with him 60, it tells us, 60 of the noblest warriors of Israel. They all are coming in their best formal mess dress, their military attire, and the 60 guys have swords hinged to their side, and here they are as Solomon's groomsmen. That's what you have the picture of in chapter 3. I know normally you might have two, three, four, maybe five groomsmen, but for Solomon, I mean, he's king. He's got 60 groomsmen with him, and they're all dressed in their military formals, swords strapped to their side. And he comes in to meet his bride for this beautiful time of the ceremony. And here he comes. And I just love the way it tells us here in verses 9 and 10 of chapter 3, verse 9 and 10, that Solomon himself made this carriage for this particular occasion. And it even goes into great detail. He got the wood from Lebanon. The posts of the carriage are silver. The base is gold. Even tells us that he's got this purple upholstery in the interior here. So here he pulls up to the church in this pimped up ride with the purple interior. I just a picture velour or velvet on the inside of this thing. And he's got this souped up Hot Wheels that he pulls up to the church ready to pick up his bride. Now, what I find fascinating is here, this story is about a thousand years before Christ. Here we are 3,000 years later. Things haven't changed, friends. What is something that a guy loves to do to impress a woman? Drive up in a nice car. That's exactly what he's doing here. He's just like, try to impress her with a nice car. For me, in the day, it was 1986 Pontiac Sunbird, turbo engine. That's what I pulled up to her house in. It had the pop-up and pop-out sunroof. I'm not even sure if they had the electric ones back then. You had to pop the whole thing out, put it in this velvet sleeve, and stash it in your trunk. I don't know. But it was, I'm telling you, it could move. It was what I used to impress her with. I'm telling you what. And then I burned out the turbo engine. But anyhow, (laughs) trying to impress her. But here in verse 11, he comes wearing the king's crown that his mother gave him. He's all decked out and driving this sporty car. And rest of verse 11 says it's the day of his wedding, the day his heart rejoiced. Now, I can tell you, Terry and I are going to celebrate 31 years of marriage next week. And I can remember like it was yesterday. The feeling I had standing at the front of the church by the altar, all my groomsmen were in line, all the bridesmaids had come down one at a time, and there she comes. I can still see it like it was yesterday. Turning the corner in the back lobby of the church, arm in arm with her dad, coming down that center aisle. Just that rejoicing, pitter-patter of your heart feeling. This is Solomon. He's got the crown on. He's got the souped-up car. He comes waltzing in, and he's rejoicing because this is the day of his wedding. And so the wedding occurs here, 
but it's not mentioned in detail. He shows up, there's a wedding ceremony with great celebration. Now when we move into chapter 4, the celebration is over, the wedding guests have gone, the food has all been eaten, the rice has all been thrown, mazel tov. And now into chapter 4, they are ready to consummate the marriage. And the first 15 verses of chapter 4 are foreplay. He initiates it, he is patient, he is tender with her, he doesn't rush it, he takes things slowly with her so that she feels beautiful and safe with him. And guys, we need to understand this. This is a new information, I'm sure, to most, but men, in terms of sexuality, we're more like a light switch, on and off. Women are more like crockpots. Take a little longer to heat up. And you got to be sensitive to that, okay? All right, now, no jokes. I was warned by my wife, no jokes. I got to reel it in. But it's true. And so he's aware of this, and he starts out slowly and tenderly with her, and he gets very specific about how beautiful she is. Great detail here about how beautiful she is. Now, before I read the detail, you have to know in advance, this is some ancient cultural language here. He's going to talk about how her hair is like a flock of goats. (laughs) And he's going to say, your teeth are like shorn sheep. In chapter 7, he's going to say that her waist is like a bundle of wheat, all right? (laughs) Guys, don't try this at home. (laughs) Don't say, hey, baby, let me just read a few verses from Song of Solomon about you tonight, because that ain't going to work. Now, you can find some modern illustrations and analogies, but the bottom line is make her feel beautiful, and this is what he's doing. He wants her to know how beautiful she is and how safe that she is with him. So here we go, chapter 4. Is it hot in here or is it just me? Here we go. (laughs) Chapter 4, verse 1. How beautiful you are, my darling. Oh, how beautiful your eyes behind your veil are doves. Now, she's wearing a veil here, and he's going to start to undress her. And the rest of verse 1, he says, your hair is like a flock of goats. There you have it, descending from Mount Gilead. Now, what he's saying here is your hair flows beautifully. It's dark and it's wavy because the long-haired black goats of the Middle East is what he's referring to here. And if you were to see a large herd of goats cascading down a hillside, the long black-haired goats, it looks like kind of the hill is moving. So that's the description he's using. It's like your hair is wavy and long and black coming down like goats off of Mount Gilead. He says in verse 2, your teeth are like a flock of sheep just shorn, meaning white and clean, coming up from the washing. Each has its twin, not one of them is alone. So she's not missing any teeth here. (laughs) And he points that out. Please don't bait me to make any West Virginia jokes. I'm not going to go there. All right. I didn't go there. I just say, don't make me go there. Anyway, so he notices, hey, every teeth has a twin. You know, every tooth has a matching side as it goes around. That's a nice thing he's saying about her. It's a nice thing. You have all your teeth. It's beautiful. And verse 3, he talks about how she has his ruby red lips in verse 3. Now, notice he's starting to move south. He starts with her eyes, her hair, and her mouth. He says in verse 3, your lips are like a scarlet ribbon. Your mouth is lovely. So now he's moving in for a kiss. 
He says there in verse 3, your temples behind your veil are like the halves of a pomegranate. Now, temples in Hebrew can also be translated cheeks. And so he says they are red like pomegranates. He's blushing a little bit here. He's saying some very endearing things. So she's blushing. She knows this is that moment where we're both going to feel a little bit awkward at first. So she's blushing. Verse 4, he says, your neck is like the Tower of David built with elegance. Now, you know, he's not saying that she's out of proportion. That would be kind of a weird look with somebody with a neck like a tower. But again, it's poetic, ancient language. He speaks of her elegance here and how she carries herself with strength and character. So she's not slouched. She says, you, you have a neck like the Tower of David. It speaks of elegance. It speaks of her stature and her character and how she carries herself. He mentions there also in verse 4, on it hang a thousand shields, all of them shields of warriors. So her neck is adorned with a necklace. That's what he's saying. And he's pointing that out. In verse 5, he says, your two breasts are like two fawns, like twin fawns of a gazelle that browse among the lilies. So he's talking about how she looks as innocent and attractive as young deer. He says in verse 6, until the day breaks and the shadows flee, I will go to the mountain of myrrh and to the hill of incense. All beautiful you are, my darling. There is no flaw in you. Very rich and very personal and very meaningful. He says in verse 8, come with me from Lebanon, my bride, come with me from Lebanon. Now, this is the first time the word bride is used in his reference to her and of her. And he will use that word four more times in this chapter because now they are married together. So he's referring to her as my bride. And he says, come with me from Lebanon. This is, again, poetic language. He's not saying that they've come from Lebanon. This is figurative for the great distance that they have kept themselves sexually apart. But now I want you to come with me from that great distance, and I want you and me to come together here. And jump to verse 12. In verse 12, he says, you are a garden locked up. My sister, my bride, you are a spring enclosed, a sealed fountain. So this is that reference to how she's kept herself pure. She's been a virgin. You are a garden locked up. Don't stumble on my sister, my bride. That's just an affectionate term that expresses permanence in the relationship. Okay, that's not anything weird. It's just, again, more cultural than anything else. Jump to verse 15. He says, you are a garden fountain, a well of flowing water streaming down from Lebanon. Now that's interesting because if you contrast that or compare it with verse 12, where in verse 12 he said, you're a spring enclosed, you're a sealed fountain. But now in verse 15, he says, you're a garden fountain, a well of flowing water streaming down from Lebanon. So again, this is poetic language to describe the fact that she is now sexually ready to receive him. She's physically responded to him. Again, no particular brilliant news to anybody, but men Men are generally aroused physically by seeing things. Women typically are generally more aroused emotionally. And so she's come to this place of being physically ready because he spent some time addressing her spiritually and emotionally, telling her how beautiful she is, just building her up, affirming her, helping her to feel safe and loved. And so now she's ready to receive him. And that actually is a description there of her physical readiness. Now, she invites him to have sex with her in verse 16. She says to him, awake, north wind, and come, south wind, blow on my garden that its fragrance may spread abroad. Let my lover come into his garden and taste its choice fruits. So they consummate the marriage here. 
He's been very tender and patient and loving towards her. She now is responding sexually. They now consummate the marriage. The early church fathers didn't know what to do with a lot of this language here. The early church fathers, the Puritans, the Reformers, by and large, read and taught and interpreted the Song of Solomon as an allegorical book that displayed the love of Christ for the church or the love of God for Israel. The early church fathers didn't know how, what do we do with this? This is kind of explicit material. I mean, when you read what we just read, that's pretty hard to look at that and think, well, that's all about Jesus' love for me. That's what that is. I don't think so. I mean, there is a greater symbolism in the whole book about the love of God for us. But for the moment, this is a literal love story of a literal husband and wife who are coming together, honoring God in their courtship, honoring God in their marriage, and they're enjoying each other sexually. But the early church fathers and the reformers and the Puritans, they didn't know what to do with this stuff. And let me just give you a few examples of their views of sex, even in marriage. For example, the Catholic Pope Innocent III of the 13th century, he said, quote, everyone knows that intercourse, even between married persons, is never performed without the itch of the flesh, the heat of passion, and the stench of lust, end quote. Kind of a low view of sex even in marriage. Martin Luther said about sex in marriage, quote, had God consulted me in the matter, I should have advised him to continue the generation of the species by fashioning them of clay, end quote. So he's like, you know, God, you had a good thing going the way you made Adam from the dirt. Why don't you just do it that way? And so he had a low view of sex and marriage, too. He said, you know, I I just wish God would do it by fashioning people from the dirt. That's his his view. St. Jerome of the 5th century A.D., he said, quote, Do you imagine that we approve of any sexual intercourse except for the procreation of children? He who is too ardent a lover of his own wife is an adulterer, end quote. Okay, that's some of the stuff that's out there in church history. Clement of Alexandria, 3rd century A.D., he said, quote, If a man marries in order to have children, he ought not to have a sexual desire for his wife. He ought to produce children by a reverent, disciplined act of the will, end quote. Do you imagine it? I don't know what he's saying there. What he's actually saying is you should be disciplined enough in your sexual desires to only have sex with your wife if it is for the sole purpose of having children. So that's the view, a very low view. And so again, they would interpret Song of Solomon with this idea that it must just be a reference of God's love for Israel, Christ's love for the church, because we don't know what to do with a lot of this explicit language, though it is poetically veiled. And what we need to understand is that, again, sex is a gift from God to be enjoyed between a husband and a wife in a monogamous, heterosexual marriage. And He has given it in this way for us, not just for procreation, for the production of children, but also for pleasure. And also, obviously, for oneness and for love and for coming together in a very private and intimate and exclusive way, devoted to each other. And I often get asked this question from time to time, what is allowed in the bedroom? Between Christians, two consenting adults, husband and wife, heterosexual marriage, under the headship of Christ. What is allowed in the bedroom? So there's a verse in Hebrews 13, verse 4, that simply says this, Marriage should be honored by all, and the marriage bed kept pure, for God will judge the adulterer and all the sexually immoral.
There's much more to learn from Pastor Gary's study in the book of Song of Solomon. But that's all we have time for today. If you missed any part of our message today on Cornerstone Connection, visit cornerstoneconnection.cc to listen again. You'll find this teaching and others from the series, as well as more books of the Bible under the Teachings tab. Pastor Gary has also compiled some additional resources for some of his teaching series that we hope will enhance your personal study time. You can even keep all of this with you wherever you go when you download our mobile app. We'd love to connect with you on social media, too. Find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, and jump into the conversations while you're there. Just follow the links at cornerstoneconnection.cc. If you're in the Leesburg area, we'd love to have you come visit us in person. Cornerstone Chapel meets every Sunday and Wednesday to worship God and spend time in the Word. Our service times and directions can be found at cornerstoneconnection.cc. Can't join us in person? No problem. We live stream our weekly services, and you can even access them on our mobile app. Our website, one more time, is cornerstoneconnection.cc. Thanks for tuning in today to Cornerstone Connection.